Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Gary Dutonet and welcome to a new episode of Unlock People's Potential. Life constantly pushes us to make decisions. And most of the time, making these decisions is quite challenging. So today, we're going to explore how algorithms and computer science can be applied to your life to help you make decisions. My guest is the best-selling author and poet, Brian Christian. You might know him for his work on artificial intelligence and his book, The Most Human Human. Brian just published a new book, Algorithms to Live By. The first time I heard about his new book was by listening to his presentation at the Long Now Foundation. I found it so eye-opening that I immediately wanted to invite him on Unlock People's Potential. Brian and I talked about how algorithms can help you think and make better decisions. And we focused a lot on business and career decisions. Brian was so insightful. So without further ado, enjoy today's episode. Hello, Brian. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Very good, very good. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you and unlock people's potential. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of your book, uh, The Algorithms We Live By. And I'll, also, you, you did a very interesting, um, very interesting presentation at the Long Now Foundation. And I highly recommend everyone to listen to it. We'll link it to the show notes. And so I really wanted to have you to talk more about algorithms and AI and how these can help us think. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And absolutely. so I, I feel there is a little bit of a confusion with these terms. So maybe you can start by just giving us a definition of what's an algorithm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we think of algorithms as being kind of uh, exclusively the, the province of, of technology, but in fact, um, you know, an algorithm is, is really just any series of steps that we take to um, make a decision or solve a problem. And so um, it is much, much broader than computation. And that's one of the themes of the book is that um, algorithms really represent kind of the, the fundamental uh, way that we approach decision making in our own lives. And so we can build this, I think, really uh, profound bridge from fields like computer science, um, statistics, machine learning, um, over to fields like psychology and behavioral economics and cognitive science, um, and, and really learn something about how to make better decisions in our own lives by thinking about um, the progress that we've been able to make on the formal versions of some of the analogs to the problems that we face in our own lives. And can we say that algorithms are kind of a more objective way to think? Just because you, you think about the problem even sometimes before you have it and you don't involve any emotions and then you use kind of the recipes to solve other problems with it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the maybe counterintuitive things that the, that the book gets into is that there, there is a role for emotion even within, um, you know, a, a formalized or algorithmic thought process. And, and that's something you and I can, can get into. Um, but I, I definitely think that one of the one of the powerful things that, for example, the field of computer science um, can offer to us in thinking about our own decision making um, is the the rigor with which it can make claims about which algorithms are better than others. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the fundamental uh, techniques of any computer scientist is uh, to to analyze and quantify the 
the amount of thinking, if you will, that an algorithm requires. Um, there's kind of the, the implicit goal of any algorithm designer is to minimize computation, um, to minimize thought. And so um, there's an entire toolbox of techniques for, for making assertions and making proofs about uh, which algorithms uh, can offer better guarantees than others and, and which can perform better than others. And so I think there's an opportunity to bring that level of rigor uh, to thinking about human decision-making, which is something that we, we don't always approach in such rigorous terms. That's true, that's true. And it, it makes me think, actually, that uh, when we have problems, sometimes we tend to overthink. Yes. And there is some kind of link with the fact that an algorithm that has kind of too much, like requires too much computational power is not good either. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, it, it may be surprising to hear that, you know, um, we have this notion that that being more like a computer or thinking more like a computer um, involves this kind of exhaustive process of considering every option and calculating everything through all the way to the end. Um, but in fact, you know, one one of the biggest areas of theoretical computer science is in dealing with problems that are so-called intractable or problems where... Uh, They're, they're simply too complicated or too difficult for you to have the luxury of being able to think everything through all the way to the end. Um, and so computer scientists have developed a host of strategies um, for dealing with that complexity uh, that include things like making approximations, uh, using randomness, uh, relaxing some of the constraints of the problem. And they, they amount to, I, I think, very, very rigorous and Uh, you know, quantitatively sound uh, principles for thinking less. Um, and so that ends up being one of the themes of the book is that actually um, there, there is a, a rationality and there's, there's a reason to um, knowing when to trust your gut and, and when to go with your instincts and, and not think too hard. Um, and that's a message that I think we wouldn't necessarily expect to get from computer science. But, but for me, it's, um, it's one of the more powerful aspects of, of thinking about decision-making in that way. And so you said that sometimes one of the, the tricks is actually to add some randomness into the, the computation. Mm -hmm. Is intuition a bit random or is it relying on more like, like non-conscious things uh, when we make the decision? Um, I think into, I mean, there's, I think in any human decision-making process, there is kind of a marriage of intuitive aspects and, and kind of deliberate formalized aspects. So just to give you like a concrete example, um, one of the examples that we open uh, with in the book is the idea of looking for a place to live, looking for an apartment or looking for a house. Um, in a lot of cities, you have this um, kind of decision process where you, um, you know, if, you, if you're trying to buy something normal like shoes or, you know, a computer or something like this, you would go out and consider all your options and then think about the one you want to get and then get that. Um, but in most cities or most competitive real estate markets, um, you can't get an apartment or a house by doing this. Um, rather, you go to any particular open house and uh, so many people show up that you basically have to decide on the spot, uh, do I get this place in front of me 
or do I walk away in the hope of finding something better, but lose the chance to, to change my mind and come back? Um, and this is, uh, this is a case where there is very much a fusion of intuitive thinking and deliberate uh, sort of formal thinking. So there's this intuitive process by which you kind of assess um, how good is this apartment, which, which involves synthesizing, you know, uh, dozens of different factors, you know, how, wh where's the location, how's the access to transit, how big is it, how nice is it, all of these things. Somehow, just intuitively, you are able, without thinking particularly hard about it, to synthesize that into some gut feeling of, uh, this place is no good, or this place really, you know, is, is a really good place. Um, but at the same time, uh, your intuition and your, your ability to assess the apartment um, doesn't necessarily get you all the way there because you're still stuck um, in this framework of what is called an optimal stopping problem, which is, okay, you've, you've seen this apartment, it's pretty good, um, but might there be something that's even better that's still out there? Um, but the only way to know is to turn down the opportunity in front of you and continue seeking. But what if you're wrong and this was the best opportunity? And so this is a case where I think intuition alone is not sufficient to tackle the problem. And this is a case where uh, computer science and mathematics and statistics can really play a role. And so uh, if you just think about the problem philosophically, it seems like kind of a paradox. You know, how do you try to make the best informed decision when the very act of gathering information is, is passing up opportunities or potentially costing you um, the, best, the best option? Um, well, intuitively, we would think something like, you know, you have, to, you have to look at enough options to set some kind of benchmark or some kind of standard, but then be willing to take the next thing that meets that standard without, you know, second guessing yourself. <clears throat> In fact, this is, uh, this is exactly what you should do, but our intuition alone doesn't tell us what that balance should be, what that ratio should be of looking to leaping. Um, and fortunately, the, the mathematics uh, is very clean in this, in this case, and there is an answer, uh, and the answer is 37%. Um, if you want the very best chance of getting the very best apartment, uh, you should spend exactly 37% of your search, or 1 over E to be precise, um, 30, the first 37% of your search, non-committally exploring your options, don't uh, get any apartment no matter how good it looks. And then after that point, be willing to pounce and commit to the first thing you see that's better than what you saw in that first 37%. Um, and so this is not merely uh, an intuitively satisfying compromise between looking and leaping. This is the provably optimal result. And this is a very interesting example because I guess most of us have the problem, especially if we live in areas like London or San Francisco. Right. But I think all of us have the same problems in other areas of your, our lives. Um, I'm thinking about how the optimal stopping problem applies to career. So mm -hmm. when you actually decide on what's the dream job and how do you get your dream job, like you have to experiment, of course. But how do you, where do you draw the line? Because most of the time you don't have uh, the option to have a recall if you right. say no to a job offer or you actually leave a job to another one. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, the original um, framing of this problem within the mathematical literature um, is as what's called the secretary problem, where the idea is, uh, is specifically in a, in a job search context where you're hiring a, a, for a secretary position, uh, X number of candidates show up in a random order and you interview them one at a time. Uh, and after e interviewing each candidate, you either hire them and send everyone else home or you dismiss them, uh, but you lose the chance to change your mind. And, so, and this, this is the context from which the 37% rule um, first emerged. And um, I, I agree with you. I think that, um, that questions of career are very much a, a matter of optimal stopping where you know, by and large, you can really only hold one job at a time. Um, if you uh, have an opportunity for another job, you don't necessarily have the ability to know how good that job is going to be until you actually quit your job and go do it. Um, but having quit your job, if you change your mind and want to go back, uh, you don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to do that. Um, and so I think it's very much a case where um, the the optimal stopping anxiety, if you will, is present. Um, and the, I mean, we don't we don't necessarily ex expect that someone will literally search for exactly thirty seven percent of their time, um, and then take the next uh, thing that's that's better after that. But um, but having an intuition of what the optimal solution to this problem looks like, um, I think at least gives us some bearing. Uh, it, it gives us a little bit of orientation if we're feeling sort of lost or overwhelmed or just, I have, I have no idea what to do in this job search context. Um, having a sense of like, okay, well, I know that the, the answer to the formal problem is 37%. So, um, you know, the, the very first opportunity that I get, even though it seems pretty good, maybe this tells me that I should keep searching at least a little bit longer. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is that young people should um, keep looking for jobs, kind of try like at least stay a couple of years in the same job, otherwise it makes it uh, not very nice and they want to learn a lot but then when you get older uh, you should be more careful when you decide to change your career um, yeah I mean I, th I think actually this also intersects with um, one of the other problems that we talk about in the book which is called the explore exploit problem um, so there's, uh, there's this famous uh, problem within the computer science literature um, that is uh, has this funny name. It's called the multi-armed bandit problem, and uh, the basic the name comes from the the nickname of a one-armed bandit, meaning a slot machine in a casino. Um, so the the idea in a multi-armed bandit problem is you walk into a casino. There are a bunch of different machines. They all pay off um, at different uh, rates. Some machines pay off more frequently than others, but you don't know which. Uh, which are the better machines, which are the worst machines, uh, until you start playing them. And so let's just imagine that you're going to be in this casino for an afternoon and you have enough time to make, let's say, 100 pulls. Simply put, what strategy 
will enable you to walk away at the end of that afternoon or the end of that hundred pulls with the most money. Um, it's going to involve some combination of what computer scientists call exploration and exploitation. And by that, uh, they mean there's a certain amount of time you spend gathering data, just trying different machines out, um, pulling different handles, seeing what happens, um, which is called exploration. And then there's a certain amount of time you're going to want to spend in the exploitation mode, which is just pulling the handle of the machine that has seemed the most promising so far and trying to get those payouts. Um, and this, I think, is very, very relevant also to questions of career. One of the, one of the key uh, insights that emerges in looking at the solutions to the multi-armed bandit problem um, is that your, your ratio of exploring to exploiting um, should change as a function of how much time you have left in the casino. So if you've just walked in through the door and you're going to be in the casino for the rest of the day, um, then you have a high incentive to just try different things because, um, A, you don't have very much information or experience yet. And so there's a pretty decent chance that by just trying some new machine, it actually is going to be better than the, the best one that you know about. Um, there's also this sense in which if you do discover a, a new machine that's, that's really promising, you've got a lot of time uh, to get that reward. Now, conversely, if you imagine that you are kind of at the end of your time in the casino, you um, are just about to leave, you only have uh, several pulls remaining, well, your strategy in this case is going to be completely different. It's going to be much more heavily weighted to exploitation, um, just pulling the handle of the machine that's the best one that you know about so far and just trying to get those payouts. Um, because if you think about it, you know, if you've been playing at, at the slot machines all day um, and you're about to leave, then trying a machine that you have never tried before, uh, for one thing, it's pretty unlikely that it's going to be better than the best one that you already know about because you've been playing them all day. So you have a lot of information. Um, you know, if you've been playing, let's say, 20 machines, then the the odds of a new machine being better than all of those uh, is only one out of 21. So that's, that's not very good odds. Um, and more importantly, uh, even if you do find a machine that that's really great and better than the, the ones that you've been playing already, um, you're about to leave. And so you don't even have enough time to, uh, to get those payouts that you've discovered. Um, and so the, th this logic of the explore-exploit trade-off um, suggests that we, we really, all of us, I think, in our lives are on this kind of trajectory or this gradient where the incentives to explore are the highest when we're young, when, we've, when we're new at a career, when we've just moved to a city, um, and the incentives, on the other hand, to exploit are the highest when we are at the end of our career or, or nearing the end of our life or the end of our time in a, in a place. Um, and so this is something that I think is pretty useful for anyone thinking about um, these sorts of life decisions is 
um, you know, from, from the perspective of the multi-armed bandit problem, the first thing you should ask yourself is where are you in terms of the, the interval of time? Are you at the beginning or are you at the middle? Or are you at the end? Um, and your willingness to experiment and explore and try new things um, versus just going with the things that you know and love um, should, should directly depend on your sense of how much time you have left. And the explore exploit problems actually make me think of a book called The Deep, uh, written by Seth Godin. Mm -hmm. And and Seth Godin makes a case that people should actually give up often, um, like strategically give up on things, uh, because the end is actually to focus on one thing mm -hmm. and to be the best at doing it. And that's the way people can actually go through the dip. And he, he explained that actually the reason why there are like so few people that are so successful at things are at things is because so many people give up too early mm -hmm. and they never make it through the dip. Is that true? I'm trying to, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with that argument and, and I, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. I'm trying to map it into computer science terms. I mean, I do think that, um, I do think that one of the differences between, uh, um, you know, the, the canonical multi-arm bandit problem and something like a career is um, in, in the multi-arm bandit problem, you know, the, the slot machine doesn't know whether you've, you've, you know, just started playing it or whether you've been playing it for, uh, you know, 10,000 hours or whatever the, the canonical uh, amount of time is to, to master something. Um, you're just as likely to get the payout on your very first pull as as on your ten thousandth pull. Um, but as I, I think the point that you know you're, you're making here is that there are many cases in life where you don't even really know um, what the rewards are going to be for for following a, a particular path until you've actually gone far enough down that path to achieve some kind of mastery. Um, and so this is one of the ways in which life is, uh, you know, is just difficult. Um, I think one of the, one of the sort of consoling points that comes up, uh, in several points in the book is that, you know, computer science gives us the, the vocabulary and, and the tools to articulate how hard certain problems are, um, And unfortunately, most of the problems that we face in, in everyday life are quite simply hard. Um, and this is a case where, um, you know, I don't necessarily have the ability to know um, what the reward will be for, let's say, becoming a lawyer or how good I will be at it until I've actually invested a substantial amount of time and effort into uh, going down that path. Um, And so, I mean, I think the, the best you can do is a combination of, you know, gathering what data you can early. You know, if you're a really promising student in your law class, that's probably a promising sign. It doesn't necessarily mean you will be a, a successful lawyer, but it's a good sign. Um, and the other thing is talking to, talking to other people who actually have been down that path. Um, and this is a heuristic that I think is really valuable Um, in many cases, it is, uh, in many cases, 
our ability to predict what will make our future self happy um, is substantially worse uh, than just talking to older adults who are in that position in their lives that we are thinking about and uh, just asking them how happy they are. Um, and that's, um, that's something I, I think is also kind of borne out in a way by, by thinking computationally. So one of, the, one of the ideas that we bring up in the book um, is this idea that's called uh, overfitting. So in machine learning, uh, you know, one of, one of the canonical machine learning problems is just you, you're given a series of data points. Um, can you uh, predict points that you haven't observed? Can you extrapolate um, into the future and so forth? Um, and one of the problems that sometimes arises uh, in, in problems of this type is that you can build a model that is, um, if you will, overfit to the data that you have um, in a way that actually makes it fail to generalize to, to unseen information. So um, you can build this uh, model that has an incredibly high number of parameters, and it perfectly explains all of the data that it's seen so far, um, but it gives these insane predictions for, uh, for the future. Um, and so this, this is a phenomenon known to statisticians and, and uh, computer scientists as overfitting. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's counterintuitive, I think, to people who don't have a background in these areas that, um, you know, in effect, you, you can't always make a better prediction by uh, thinking harder or using a more complex model. Um, in fact, you sometimes find that you make dramatically worse predictions the more complex your model is. And so what is the, what is the best way for dealing um, with this kind of uncertainty? Um, well, one of the techniques that's used in machine learning is what's called regularization. And the basic idea in regularization is that if you're dealing with, um, you know, noisy data or an unpredictable future, um, one of the most important things that you need to do is control the complexity of your model. And so regularization is a technique where uh, you, you add a penalty for the complexity of the model um, in, into the, the function that you're trying to optimize. And so this is one of those things that I think, um, you know, it's, it sounds very sort of arcane and technical at first, but I actually think it's really powerfully relevant to making life decisions because, you know, almost any, almost any life decision uh, falls into this category of extrapolating from the information that you have, which is basically, you know, uh, what, does, what does your present self think is going to happen or what, what do you think your future self is going to feel about something, um, extrapolating from that into this future that is fundamentally not, not entirely knowable. And so, um, you know, one, one of the messages here is that uh, you actually don't want to uh, consider an enormous number of factors and make a really complicated model. Um, so, you know, to, to, make, to make the example concrete, um, a, a good friend of mine was deciding which medical school to go to. Um, and so he built this elaborate spreadsheet. I think it had something like 80 variables in it. 
Um, <laughs> you know, it was like, what city is it in? What's the scholarship? What's the, you know, a, a job residency acceptance rate coming out of each of these programs? Da, 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 da. You know, he weighted each of these 80 columns and it just told him what to do. And, and he did that. Um, I, I, I think that's an example of an approach that seems rational, seems like quote unquote, the kind of mathematical thing to do in that situation. Um, but in fact, it falls prey to this, this problem, which is, um, you could end up making the decision, uh, for, you know, for the 79th most important variable or you, or for some weird interaction between all of these kind of unimportant factors that you can't even really, uh, precisely estimate anyway. And so, you know, one, one of the simplest, uh, regularization techniques is just control the number of factors. And so it seems, uh, it may seem kind of counterintuitive, but for cases where you're making a really big life decision that's going to affect you really far into the future, um, consider making it on the basis of, you know, a single factor, you know, identify this single parameter that is most important to you, make the decision on that basis, um, and just accept that given the amount of uncertainty involved, that's probably about the best you can do. Oh, this is so interesting. And actually, I want to link that to like link the explore exploit problem to businesses. Yeah. So businesses have the same dilemma where like successful businesses have the ability to kind of milk the cash code that they have. Absolutely. Or they can allocate their resources to innovate and create a sort of purple cow. Mm -hmm. And how can they apply such a uh, such an algorithm in their strategy yeah i mean actually this is really interesting because um there just to give you a little bit of backstory on the explore exploit problem on the on the multi-arm bandit problem um for uh for most of the 20th century the multi-arm bandit problem was considered by the mathematics community to be unsolvable um and there was uh there was a lot of joking by the British mathematicians um, during World War II that they wanted to drop the multi-armed bandit problem over Germany um, as the ultimate instrument of intellectual sabotage to just waste the brain power of the German mathematicians on this unsolvable problem. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the really surprising breakthroughs came in the 1970s um, by a mathematician named John Gittens, um, who had been asked by the Unilever Corporation. Uh, they hired him as a consultant and, and said basically the exact question that you just asked, which is, you know, we're, we're a pharmaceutical company, we're a drug manufacturer. Uh, how do we allocate our, you know, our, our resources, our capital between research and development of, of speculative new drugs that could be great, um, but many of them will fail, um, versus, uh, on, on marketing, let's say for, you know, current profitable drugs. Um, and John Gittins immediately identified this as like, oh, this is basically a multi-armed bandit problem. Um, this is basically the explore exploit problem. And, uh, it, you know, it's one of these great stories in the in the history of mathematics where uh, uh, Gittin says, you know, well, well, I know this problem to be unsolvable, but 
let me think about what might at least be a pretty good approximation. Um, and then to his own uh, astonishment, it, it's later proven that his approximation is the solution to the multi-armbander problem. Um, but uh, the, the, key, the key thing here, and I think one of the ways that uh, companies and individuals differ is that uh, for, any, for any given individual faced with the kind of explore-exploit situation, um, we are on basically a, a finite interval of time. You know, obviously, we all are going to live on, the, on this earth for a finite amount of time. You know, we're going we're gonna to work in our careers for a finite amount of time. And so there's a sense in which um, we kind of position ourselves on this, uh, on this interval. Uh, and we can, we can say, you know, I, I'm at the end of my career, therefore I should be more focused on exploiting. Um, for a company, though, it's quite different, right? So most companies want to continue existing uh, infinitely into the future. Um, and so how do you make uh, an explore-exploit judgment if you plan on living forever uh, or you plan on doing business forever? Um, and the one of the breakthroughs that Gittins was able to apply to the problem was the idea of what's called uh, a discounting function. And so um, even if your company plans to be around for the next thousand years, uh, you know, generating profits this quarter is still more important than generating profits, you know, in 50 years. Um, if, if only because it enables you to continue to exist. Um, and so, uh, any, any company, any entity has what's called a discounting function, which is, uh, you know, how do you express the relative value of profits in the future to profits today? Um, and so, for example, you know, you can imagine that uh, you're in the casino and you're going to be in the casino forever. Uh, but uh, the value of a payoff on your next uh, pull is only 90%, let's say, of the value of a payoff right now. Um, that enables you to kind of uh, set, set a, a willingness to be exploratory. So obviously, um, if payoffs far into the future are worth the same as they are now, uh, then you should be willing to be extremely exploratory um, because you can uh, just gather a ton of information and set yourself up for high payouts way into the future. Um, if, on the other hand, you have this really steep discounting function and you're much more interested in uh, profits now than profits in the future, then you're going to, of course, be less exploratory and more willing to take kind of uh, known payouts or guaranteed payouts in the short term um, at the expense of gathering less information about what might be even better payoffs down the line. And so basically, yeah, it makes sense when you think about startups and all like established businesses, when you think that startups are kind of all in into the exploratory, exploratory phase while established businesses are actually exploiting a lot. Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the interesting, um, one of the interesting things here is that if, um, if the, the time horizon that you're on or the discounting function that you have um, kind of sets the strategy that you're going to pursue, uh, this actually becomes quite interesting uh, to, to analyze business uh, you can work in the other direction. You can say, 
I'm observing, uh, I'm observing this industry or this company uh, taking a, a, a highly exploit-focused uh, strategy. That must imply that they think they are running out of time or running out of money. So to give you a concrete example, um, in the book we look at Hollywood uh, and we say there's this really interesting phenomenon that's happening right now in Hollywood, which is uh, more and more of the movies that are coming out are sequels. So in 1981, um, uh, among the 10 highest grossing movies of 1981, uh, only two of them were sequels. Um, 10 years later in 1991, three of the top 10 grossing movies were sequels. 10 years later in 2001, it was five out of the top 10. And another decade later in 2011, eight of the top 10 highest grossing films of the movie uh, of the year were sequels. Um, so in fact, 2011 set the record for the greatest percentage of sequels among major studio releases. Um, then 2012 broke that record and then 2013 broke that record again. Um, and we are still living in this era where this kind of unprecedentedly high percentage of the movies that are coming out are sequels. Um, and so what do we make of that? Well, I think it's, um, armed with the, the intuitions of the explore exploit trade-off, um, we can start to identify that this is, this is an exploit strategy. Um, studios are spending more of their resources, uh, producing films that will have a, a known fan base, um, that will have sort of known guaranteed box office take, um, but what they are not doing is spending their resources uh, developing what might be the next great series of franchises. Um, they're, they're sort of milking the uh, existing franchises, but, but failing to develop uh, new ones. And so this is very much an exploit-heavy strategy. And we might infer from this that the industry... Um, feels it is running out of time or running out of money. Um, and in fact, I think this analysis is correct. Um, we, we look at uh, box office profits, and, and it turns out that um, profits, uh, box office profits went down 40%, for example, between 2007 and 2011. Um, and so here's a case where you can see this direct relationship between the strategy that the businesses in that industry are pursuing and the, the sense of kind of how much time they have um, to, to pursue these more exploratory strategies. Oh, that's very interesting. So basically what you're saying, Brian, is that Hollywood is kind of cannot afford anymore to explore because the margins are not big enough and they have like very high competition with other medium, mm -hmm. like other types of medium. And so basically they have to like exploit as much as possible before they, they cannot get any money out of their initial uh, strategy. Right, right, exactly. And I think, you know, it's um, as, as a, you know, cinema goer, I find it a little bit discouraging how many sequels there are. Um, but also just from a business perspective, there's a, 
I mean, not not to be too melodramatic, but there's a sense in which they are almost giving up. You know, they they are sort of resigning themselves to the fact that they are going to run out of time. And so they're pursuing a strategy which will maximize uh, revenue in the short term, but as a result, leave them in an even worse position, let's say five years from now, uh, when they don't, you know, when when people aren't interested in seeing X-Men 15 uh, but but they don't have any other franchises that they've been developing in the meantime. So, um, you know, it, it's a strategy that's very much geared toward the short term. Um, one, you know, one of the other things that I think about in this context is um, there. There's a great interview with Larry Page um, from from Alphabet uh, slash Google, uh, who talks about the the strategies that companies can adopt as a function of the, the length of the tenure of their CEO. So he says, for example, that the, the average Fortune 500 CEO lasts, I think it's something like four years. And, you know, he and Sergey Brin have been, you know, at the, at the helm of Google for now whatever, 20-something years. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the way that he puts it is, you know, there are problems that can be solved in four years and there are problems that can be solved in 20 years. And if you're going to be the CEO and, you know, your job is in danger within a four-year time span, then you just can't really afford to embark on a 20-year-long quest to to solve a problem. And so, you know, he, he makes this argument as a way of thinking about... Um, you know why? Why have companies like Exxon and BP and these these huge um, oil companies? Um, why have they not been leading the charge on you know the next generation of energy technology? Um, and in part, you know, this is Page's argument, but you know he's saying uh, if you have um, you know a four a four year management trying to solve a, a 20 year problem, uh, then it's just not going to work. And I, I, I see this as being very much, uh, related to, to the explore exploit trade-off, um, that if you want to, for example, develop, you know, next generation of energy storage or energy, uh, technology, um, you're going to have to embark on a lot of highly speculative things most of which will not work, or if they work, they work uh, in a really long-term sense. Um, and if your shareholders or you know your board or whatever is expecting some kind of tangible, concrete result in the short term, then you're just not gonna you're not gonna even go down that path. And so, um, you know, I think this is a really um, a really important way of thinking about. Uh, you know how how we prepare ourselves to to tackle some of the the bigger projects in society um that you know di- different businesses different kind of management structures and so forth are set up to optimize over different time scales um but different problems of course require different time scales for a solution oh this is a very interesting example especially when you think about the strategy of google that is kind of exploiting a lot uh, adwords but at the same time is exploring a lot of areas with like the the attempts of having Google Glass or now like the self-driving cars. Yeah. And it makes me think about 
also inventions and like government projects when you think about governments having a longer term perspective than businesses and they can afford spending and more in exploration yeah i think that's exactly right yeah i mean i you know this has become one of the lenses through which i <laughs> i kind of see the world um and even you know even thinking about google itself um you know, I was just reading something to the effect the other day that they are, um, they're bumping up the rate at which they show ads. I think it was in the maps product, but I, I, I could be wrong about this. So, you know, don't take my word for it. But, um, it was, uh, it, it's this kind of thing that, um, that starts to indicate a shift towards a more exploit, uh, oriented strategy. So, you know, if the if the Maps product was growing the user base wildly, um, then you would not display a lot of ads because you you know you'd focus on first just providing the best possible experience so that everyone uses it, and you defer the actual kind of revenue generation into the future. Um, and so when I see that a product is then starting to lean more heavily on you know, monetizing itself at the cost of, you know, being slightly more irksome to users, that to me is a very clear indication that, that, um, you know, they've, they've, they've reached the saturation point or they've sort of, they've grown to the point that they feel that they can, uh, grow to. Um, and they've just entered it into a fundamentally different phase of, of strategy. Um, and I, and I completely agree with you about the role of governments. I mean, I think, you know, that's, um, that's something that, you know, is very, has very much played out in, in technology, for example, where, you know, DARPA develops, you know, some of the, the fundamental, uh, the foundations of the internet. Um, and we now have, uh, companies, you know, built, obviously building on that. Um, but it would not necessarily have been in the uh, economic interest of any particular startup to, you know, develop that infrastructure in this kind of highly speculative fashion or in a fashion that would only have really, uh, paid out over a, a 50 year high time span, for example. Um, so I, I do, I, I 100% think that there's an important role for governments to address, um, the, the longest time scale problems. And so, I mean, even if you look at the sciences, you know, I think there's a really important role for just fundamental research and grants, grants for just doing fundamental research on problems where we don't really know the application uh, of that uh, problem yet. Um, precisely because, you know, it's, it's important to be making those investments um, on those really long bets, even when we don't, even when we don't even know uh, what problem it's going to solve or, or what it's going to address. This is so true, Brian. And there's one reason I really, really liked reading your book is basically you you give some frameworks about how, like frameworks that we can use to help us think, but as well we can use the same frameworks to interpret uh, and decode others strategies mm -hmm. and this is like very interesting because it means that algorithms and like or like computer scientists have built algorithms that 
are a way for us to think better, but also since they have been invented by humans to solve human problems, we can use the same algorithms to actually decode how other people naturally think. That's right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, I you know one of the one of the large arcs of the field of computer science is um, you know any any computer scientist their their first approach to a problem is always just asking themselves, what would I do? You know, how would I approach this problem? And that becomes kind of the first draft of any algorithm. Um, <clears throat> but what we now have is this extremely robust set of tools for evaluating, you know, which, which algorithms are better than others? What are, what are the optimality guarantees? What are the bounds um, on any of these proposed solutions? And we can figure out which ones are the best. And so I think there's a there's a real opportunity to kind of complete the cycle and 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 complete the feedback loop and bring some of those insights back over to the human side and inform our own intuitions and our own thought processes and you know as you say it gives us a way of recognizing um some of the problems and some of the strategies that we see around us um now, now we can recognize them when we encounter them and we have a vocabulary um, for expressing the type of situation that we're in and the characteristics of the appropriate strategies um, in that situation. And I think that's, a, that's just a really powerful set of tools to have as you go through life, both in business and also in our personal lives. And you, you share a lot of these tools in your book. And I was wondering what's like if there is actually a way for your readers to to go further i'm I'm thinking about people who are not computer scientists and want to actually mm -hmm. learn a bit more about how they can use algorithms to first think or like recognize other people's strategies mm -hmm. yeah um i mean certainly i would encourage anyone who is who's interested to you know go deeper into some of this material um you know to to check out the book algorithms to live by um and and algorithms to live by.com uh, is the website for that. And I think, you know, it's, um, it's for anyone who, who does have a background in computer science. Um, it's a way to kind of see the, the broader applications and the broader insights that can be derived from some of these canonical, um, problems. And for people that don't have a background in computer science, um, you know, the, the book, the book has very few equations in it. I'm not, it may have almost zero equations in it. Um, it has no, you know, explicit code in it. It is very much written, uh, to be approachable to people who don't have a, uh, you know, a training in computer science. Um, and it lays out some of the kind of the fundamental concepts and some of the, the, the bigger ideas. Um, so I think it's, you know, it, we didn't write it to, you know, teach computer science, uh, to people, but, it, but I think it does very much have that characteristic that, um, for people who have always been interested in the field, but don't have the training, um, it's, it's a way of kind of making sense of what are some of the major results and, and more importantly, what are, what are some of the big insights that, that have come out of that? And what, what are the main principles that arise from thinking like an algorithm? I mean, I think at the at the highest level, um, there's there's really several things. So the first is computer science gives us a way to 
um, quantify the complexity of a of a problem and to quantify the complexity of the solution. Um, so there's this, uh, there's what's called big O notation, uh, which anyone familiar with computer science will know what that is. Um, it basically enables you to make claims about how the how the algorithm scales with the problem. You know, this is something that um, anyone in the world of business is interested in, right? It's like, how do you um, how do you s scale uh, a strategy or how do you scale a solution um, such that it's still sustainable at you know a factor of ten, right? So, um, computer science has been thinking about this since the very beginning. Um, and big O notation is is how they express that. So you have things like uh, uh, linear time, quadratic time, exponential time. Um, and one of the things that characterizes a successful algorithm is that it's able to kind of keep keep pace um, as the complexity of the problem gets bigger and bigger. Um, and you know, I think one of the one of the powerful lessons that comes out of thinking about uh, not only what's the quality of the final you know outcome of a, an algorithm, what's what's the quality of the solution that it yields at the end, um, but also how how long does it take to run? How much time? How much space? Um, how much memory does it consume? Um, it, it gives us a, a formal and rigorous way to trade off um, the, the quality of the solution against the complexity of the decision-making process itself. And so this is one of those cases where um, I think most of us think about computers as um, kind of this this unattainable standard of rationality in terms of, you know, they... they uh, they process every every you know possible solution. They reliably identify the best one. Um, they produce uh, you know repeatable answers that are you know completely precise and completely certain. Um, in fact, that that only characterizes how computers work in the simplest of problems um, and up against. NP hard problems, intractable problems. Uh, computer scientists, you know, know better than anyone that you just don't have the luxury of being able to think forever. Um, and so there's a whole set of techniques for using approximation, using trade-offs, knowing knowing when not to think, basically. Um, and there's a really powerful argument, I would say, that emerges. Um, for just a, a different way of characterizing rationality, um, that uh, these uh, heuristic strategies, these um, methods for using approximation, using tr randomness, um, arriving at solutions with, with partial certainty or arriving at the correct answer most of the time, but not all of the time, um, these are not, uh, they're not the concessions that we make when we can't be rational. Uh, rather, they are what being rational means when you're up against a hard enough problem. And so that, I think, is a, is a vision of rational thinking and rational decision-making um, that is both comforting, um, 
but also precise at the same time. And, it, and it's certainly more human uh, than we might expect a field like computer science to offer us. No, th thank you. Thank you so much for all of this, Brian. I actually have a last question for you. Yeah. Is how do you apply all of these concepts in your life? In my life specifically, personally. Yeah, personally, like, do you, because you, you're probably like the person who is the most knowledgeable in how you can <laughs> like draw insight from algorithms into decision making. And how do you apply these in your life? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you just a, a very simple example. Um, I am, uh, I'm engaged and my fiance and I are moving in together um, in two weeks, in fact, next month. Um, and uh, I live in San Francisco and she lives in Oakland. Um, and we were going to move into her apartment in Oakland. And so, you know, I, I immediately identified this as kind of an explore exploit situation where, you know, of course, we have restaurants that we love in Oakland, but it was like, okay, we're going to start this whole new chapter of our lives in Oakland. We should, you know, spend the time and energy trying a bunch of new things out because they're probably not going to be better than our favorite places. But if they are, we have, you know, the whole rest of our lives to enjoy them. <clears throat> and conversely, you know, there are new restaurants opening up all the time in San Francisco, but we should just make sure to go back and spend our time, you know, going to all of our favorite places one last time um, as we get ready to kind of end that chapter of our lives. And um, the, the irony was that we then changed our minds and decided that she would be moving into my apartment in San Francisco. And so we immediately inverted the entire strategy. And now uh, <laughs> we only go to our favorite places in Oakland and only try new restaurants in San Francisco. Nice, nice. Thank you so much, Brian, for just being here and telling us more about how to actually think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's, it's been really fun. Is there any way for our listeners to get in touch with you, Twitter or? Um, yeah, if you just go, um, if you just Google Brian Christian, um, you can find my website and my contact information. And uh, yeah, yeah, feel free to be in touch and um, yeah, and, and check it out. And I'm always happy to hear from readers. So um, yeah, definitely don't hesitate. And thanks. Perfect. Thank you very much, Brian. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Unlock People's Potential. This podcast was brought to you by Contriber. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Let us know what you think. You can find the show notes on our blog, blog.contriber.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you've been inspired to become a great leader and to unlock people's potential.